You're invited to join Anna and Sam at our new regional event, the Food and Faith Gathering. A collaboration between the Food and Faith podcast and the Keep and Till. On November 9th, 2019 at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, you'll join congregations, practitioners, dreamers, and advocates as we discuss issues around food, ecology, community, and social justice. Head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org to register. Tickets are $25 each, which include breakfast and lunch. We'll be joined by Heber Brown, Karen Mann, Dave Baldwin, and Sam as speakers, along with a trip to the Keep and Tell Farm for lunch and for worship. And if you want to be a founding member of the Patreon supporters team for the pod by committing to give $5 a month, you can attend the gathering for free. So head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather to register. That's foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather. We'll see you on November 9th at McDaniel College at the Food and Faith Gathering. Hey, Food and Faith podcast community. It's Anna here. We are replaying one of our early episodes with my good friend, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, partially because it's an excellent episode and you can't listen to it too many times but also because this next weekend, the Food and Faith Gathering is happening. And as you heard on the intro to this episode, Dr. Heber Brown is going to be one of our speakers. So it's not too late. Get your tickets. Come join us in Maryland and hear from the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown and others as we gather together to talk about food and faith. Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Hey friends, welcome to episode two of the Food and Faith Podcast. I am thrilled about our guest today. I've been looking forward to this interview since before the podcast really even was solidified into being. Reverend Dr. Heber Brown is a good friend and colleague and someone who I have been keeping an eye on and listening to for years now, because every time that I encounter Heber and his work, um, I see God working in ways that are surprising and that challenge me and also that humble me. Um, Heber talks about how he wants after he dies not to be remembered for him, but for the seeds that he's planted and the systems that he's helped to put in place. And I think that in hearing this interview, um, you'll be in agreement with myself and Sam, as we say, we are grateful for the work and the ministry and the life of Heber. And he's got many more years of ministry ahead of him, but um, already the seeds that he's planted and the systems that he's put in place are a beautiful testament to the kingdom of God and to the, the work of God in the world. Heber is one of those people that I ended up in a room with and just noticed him across the room. And then when he began to speak, I said, this person is somebody I just want to sit at the feet of and learn. And then to discover um, not only was he exceptionally gifted in terms of preaching, teaching um, and insight to learn that uh, that we were doing similar work in the same state and to realize that he was a neighbor of mine just kept me encouraged that 
in our in our geographical spaces there are people who we've never heard of or haven't met yet that are doing this work and so Heber, Heber keeps me regularly encouraged to keep going on this journey of faith he encourages me to be a better pastor encourages me to keep being more creative in the way um, that I think about my own work and think about the gifts that people around me have to offer so yeah when we started this pod one of the first people was we got to get Heber on here and just let his joy come through um, come through what he has to say and so there's plenty of it here, and so we're really excited to introduce to you the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown. So it is our joy today to welcome the Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III um, to the podcast today. Heber is the founding director of the Black Church Food Security Network and pastor at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland. And a little inside story, we can dive into this if you want, but we all met and now serve. And so not only are we grateful for their support of the podcast, but grateful um, for them bringing the three of us together. And so the opportunity to have a conversation today is super exciting for me. So I want to start the conversation, though, because this is the first time we've had a Marylander that isn't me on the pod. And so I'm disappointed you don't have your O's hat on today. I mean, there's not oh, much to celebrate, okay. but you don't have your O's hat. Like, oh, good. Oh, good. There it is. It's been a tough year in Birdland. Oh, a terrible year. you got to hold out for hope. Absolutely. We worship a God of hope. So, Heber, well, welcome to the just, program. Thank you so much. I will- Add my welcome and appreciation. I, Heber, I think like we've known each other, I don't know, five or six years now. And just, it's been such a joy to see the way that God's working in your life and the way that you're working in your ministry and your community. Um, and we had the opportunity and the, the pleasure of teaching together at Wake Div this last uh, February. February, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I clung on to every word that you offered in that classroom. And I, um, it really has actually opened up some thought around the first question that we are asking all of our guests on this podcast, not just you, um, which is to talk about what your geography is and looking at not just the the churches that we serve being the people that walk through the doors um, and, and what happens inside that space, but being pastors to our community and, um, I would love for, if you were willing to share the story of what happened when you started looking at, at the geography around your, your church, um, and all that's come from that. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for the invitation to be a part of this, uh, amazing podcast and conversation. And I'm grateful to be uh, fellow sojourners with you both. Uh, it's just, it's enriched my life in so many ways. And let me just add my shout out to Wake Forest as well. Uh, Fred Bonson and the entire family, John Senior, everybody at Wake Forest, just great folks and um, appreciative of being connected there too. Uh, in terms of my geography, I really got to get super personal first before it even points to the, um, the ministry and the church. And my personal geography um, is, um, has roots in Eastern North Carolina and in uh, Eastern Virginia. Uh, as well. My family on both sides are from, my maternal family is from uh, Eastern Virginia and and paternal family branches in Aden, North Carolina, uh, not far from Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, In Virginia, we're in uh, Northumberland County, uh, Virginia, um, Reedville, more specifically. And that is important and it matters in the, in the, 
larger story of what the Black Church Food Security Network is all about because it really was um, the birth of this network in many ways is connected to my roots mm -hmm. and my family's roots and me paying closer attention to um, the lived experiences of those um, who still lived in, this, in, in the South. And while my grandparents, um, actually on both sides, my grandparents came North during what's called the Great Migration, mm -hmm. where um, hundreds of thousands, and I think the number is far greater than that, maybe a million plus, uh, African-Americans moved from the South to the North for greater opportunities with jobs and better quality of life and uh, escaping the terrorism of racial violence in the South. Um, you know, we still have roots down South. And I grew up every summer um, going back down, we would say going back down the country. And my parents would take us back down the country and we would stay at my big mama's house, Mama Geraldine, all summer and get a different kind of life. I mean, Mama Geraldine had an outhouse behind the house and me and my brother had, uh, she had a well. And so when she pumped that, got that water out of that well for, uh, you know, when it was time for us to take a bath, um, she wasn't gonna keep on pumping that well all day. So me and my <laughs> brother had to share the bath water. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we might have been 10, 11 years old in the same bathtub because Mama Geraldine ain't pumping no more water out of the well. <laughs> Uh, humbling experience, um, but those kind of experiences, and even just like, you know, seeing what real dark looks like, you know, down south with, you know, we don't have, and we didn't have street lights every few feet. When it got dark, it was dark down yeah. there, and yeah. you didn't have to tell us to come inside. We wanted to be inside uh, as children coming up, and so that's a part of my story, and it has uh, it's it's a beautiful circle of life moment for me to come down to a ministry that puts me back in touch with my upbringing and with my family roots. That geography is is important uh, for telling the full story or a fullest a fuller story of how the Black Church Food Security Network came to be. In terms of the ministry itself, um, North Carolina and Virginia is a part of the part of the geography of how the ministry, uh, where the ministry flourishes and takes shape, in addition to DC um, and um, um, across Maryland and different places as well, but really springing from Baltimore City where I am now and where I'm blessed to pastor <clears throat> the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in here in Baltimore City. Um, and it is there that uh, where I um, started to pay attention to the local, the more immediate geography of where our church is located. And what I realized was while we had uh, fresh food sources near us, in fact, one almost directly across the street from us, um, we weren't able to access that healthy food uh, because of economic reasons. Right. And I just didn't want, and you've heard me tell the story before, both of you, I just did not want when I recognized we needed that food, and when I recognized that I was making pastoral visits to the hospital for members who were there for diet-related issues, and the pattern was just getting more and more and more, and I wanted to do more than just pray and read scripture, mm -hmm. that fresh food market was like, that could be answered prayer. That's what the initial thought was in my mind. 
I go over there and I see that the price point was so far out of reach that it wouldn't make, it didn't make sense for us to find a way to, to make a connection there. Um, and I did not want to lead my church down another rabbit hole of a charity program, a food charity program. And while there's a whole lot of great charity being done around the world, there's also such a thing as toxic charity. Yes. There's a, there's a kind of charity that strips away at the humanity and dignity of people. Um, and not only strips away at the humanity and the dignity of those who receive, uh, but Anna, I've also, in, in reading different works, Sam, I've seen um, and read account after account of how that kind of toxic charity also corrodes the soul and sense of self-worth of those who are giving. Like, what does it do to us when we're constantly in postures of giving to others? Uh, that can be just as deadly, just as, or just as dangerous at the, at the very least, just as dangerous. Um, and so I didn't want to have another food charity program. I didn't see it as a way that was God-honoring in the context of our ministry. Um, and so that was the moment that pushed me to the divine uh, discontent uh, and being pushed to a moment where I had an idea of us just growing food on the land that we owned. And it wasn't a whole lot. It's still not a whole lot. It's 1,500 square feet. And some people come and visit us at our church and see our garden. And because of what they see in the paper and they, you know, oh, I saw people <laughs> brown on TV. And, you know, it must I, all be this big farm. <laughs> oh, my God. It has to be a 25-acre farm in the middle of Baltimore City. Photography lies. <laughs> <laughs> It's a front yard, man. It's a front yard. It's 1,500 square feet. Uh, but God has blessed us to uh, have a church full of people who grew up down south who have bona fide green thumbs. Yeah. Not like make pretend ones like me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and God has blessed us. And, you know, we grow about 1,200 pounds of produce on that garden, that 1,500 square foot garden every year. And it's it's just a beautiful thing. But I love the fact that it's, it's 1,500 square feet. And I love the fact that we are a church of like 135 active members. I got more on the roll, but y'all know how that goes. Oh, yep. <laughs> 135 <laughs> active members. I love sharing that because yeah. as y'all know, and as many of the listeners and those who are watching may know, most churches in this country are about 200 or so people. And so I wanted to do my part to help prove that the average church in America could do something very impactful and transformative to the local community that could also have wide reaching and wide ranging implications as well. Yeah, and which I think it's so so good to, it's to put out the reality, the facts, right? <laughs> because it's so easy to pedestal people. Well, Dr. Brown is doing it, but we know he has X, Y, and Z. And you're like, no, I've got some dirt, some people, some God. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So could you share a little bit with our listeners? Um, so you started with those 1500 square feet yep. um, and some wonderful people who, um, who started farming it. What's happened since then? And now you have this whole network. I mean, could you just give us a quick like overview of from that, that moment of, okay, let's grow our own food to where you are now working with farmers all up and down the Eastern seaboard? Yeah, the quick the quick story is that um, when when I was led to cast vision for our church about growing food and the people started rising up from the pews and saying I can help and incidentally 
it wasn't the younger people initially that were saying that. And in fact, even to this day, it is more the seniors who really are the lifeblood of our church's garden. But, you know, when I, when we cast that vision and started getting to work with the garden, um, things were going great. We were growing the food and bringing it inside our church in our church's multi-purpose room and after worship, making it available to members. And we were just giving it away initially. And then we started, we transitioned after some years to ask for donations. And then finally we got to the place where we are now, where we put a fixed price on it. Um, and even with our fixed price, we're able to beat the local markets in many ways because we don't have all the overhead. So I really think that micro food systems and micro systems in general may be something that we should really consider uh, in light of the challenges around climate change and environmental challenges that we face um, and just the relentless march of an economic system that continues to exploit um, and extract um, and move at a pace that's far quicker than anything that nature can help you know, replenish in real time. Um, but what really pushed us to go beyond our 1,500 square feet was the Baltimore uprising. Mm. It, was, it was the arrest and the death of Freddie Gray uh, at the hands of the Baltimore City Police Department. That is one of the stories that one of these days I'm going to have to sit down and write fully out. Yes, please. That, that is one of the beautiful things. That was like a phoenix rising from fire. The, Baltimore, the Black Church Food Security Network <clears throat> was born in the bosom of the Baltimore Uprising. Mm. Because when the <clears throat> school system and the transportation system and the other systems of local communities here in the city started shutting down or pulling back, particularly from the Black communities, uh, our church phone started ringing off the hook. Right. And many of the phones of the, my peers in ministry as well. People were hungry. And our church, part of our calling card was, of course, that garden and having food. And so when they started calling us, um, we started to not only uh, get food from our garden to take to various neighborhoods, but a wonderful farmer here in Maryland, her name is Aaliyah, Fra uh, Aaliyah Frazier. Uh, at Black Dirt Farm Collective, Aaliyah and I connected, and she started calling her farmer friends from outside of the state, and they started trucking food into the city of Baltimore as well. And so for about two and a half weeks or so, Aaliyah had trucks of food coming into the city from her farmers, and our church was processing food and food donations, and then loading it up on our church van, and I was driving it around the city, setting up shop on corners around the city. We did that for about a couple of weeks. And it reminded me while I was doing it, it reminded me of this idea that I'd had six months prior to the death of Freddie Gray around an alternative food system led by those most directly affected by food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the Black Church Food Security Network got its start. Um, I figured after about two and a half weeks of us connecting with farmers and churches and communities without the involvement of government and without the involvement of corporate leaders or whatever. We were doing something for ourselves and by ourselves. I said, well, if you we can do that for two and a half weeks, let's see if we can do it for longer than that. And in a nutshell, that's how the Black Church Food Security Network really got started. And now we continue working with churches, helping them to start gardens on land they already own. Mm -hmm. Focus on that because gentrification is a real issue in the city of Baltimore and in many communities across this country. 
And when there's such a premium on land, we wanted to strategize around what is the most protected land that African-Americans have. And church-owned land is a part of that category. It's like our original land trust, right? It's where we commonly share the land and the bounty of it. And so that's one thing. We help Black churches grow on their land. The second thing is we connect with African-American farmers in Virginia and North Carolina right back near where my family roots are. Mm. And we help pipeline their fresh produce from uh, soil to sanctuary is what we say, from their farms. And we set up shop in churches, little mini farmers markets inside the church on the day when the church worships, so that when they come out of worship, there's a bounty of fresh food grown by local farmers. And many times the farmers are there as well because they love shaking the hands of people who are buying and getting their food. So really, the network is there. That in those two weeks, it it came into life and has not stopped since. Sounds like and continue to to make to branch out. Exactly, it does. Yeah, yeah. I love. I mean, following just your social media, I love how you pop up and you're out at some farm, <laughs> you know, in some place I've never even heard of. <laughs> and even from observing from afar, I can see the network. I mean, it's just these. It's it's not it's that magic of relational connectivity and that there are actual human beings connecting with another human being who then says, Oh, wow. So-and-so and so-and-so and your ability to trace those and connect them. Um, it's just miraculous. And yet I'm not putting you on a pedestal because anyone can do it. Right. It, that is exactly the point. Yes. Anybody can do it. Um, and, um, it's, this journey has pushed me to, to rethink or continue to evolve in my understanding around what ministry is and what a pastor is, right, and what that means. I have um, had to work. I mean, and so, yes, I put the highlights on social media of being at the farm and meeting great people, and that is a real highlight. That was a genuine, and I feel like, you know, a child on Christmas morning when I'm meeting farmers and walking their land and hearing their stories. Uh, and uh, it's a challenge doing this work. It's a challenge driving to North Carolina uh, to meet with farmers, to coordinate logistics around transport, to, transporting their food and the quality and ensuring that the quality stays high. And then I still got to preach on Sunday. I still got to teach Bible study. I still got to visit members who are sick. Like, and so what it has, what it is pushing me to do, and I won't even pretend to have the answer on this, but it is pushing me to rethink what pastoral ministry is, at least in our context at Pleasant Hope, that might have some implication on other ministries as well. Because as much as I loved all of my seminary experiences, I, I gotta, I gotta, there's something bubbling up in me that says ministry is changing and perhaps ministry must change mm-hmm. in light of some of the tectonic plates that are moving in our midst. Um, that previous pastors and churches did not have to consider. And could you say a little more about how you're seeing that showing up? I mean, it really resonates with me. I think something that I often talk about the difference between our congregations being the people who come through our doors on Sunday morning, as opposed to the people responsible to minister to our, our, our parishes, our communities. It seems like you're taking it even a step forward to say that you have a responsibility to a network. I mean, you're, you have a responsibility to be 
nurturing not just the neighbors, you know, within a block radius, but acknowledging that we're all interconnected. So your congregation within the few blocks or, you know, a few miles is connected to these farmers. How is it, how is your role different than a nonprofit manager? Why is it that you're a pastor in this? And how is it that that is pastoral rather than, you know, there's obviously a lot of management. You, you could just be a nonprofit CEO, yeah. but I, I hear something more. Yeah. Um, so that is, uh, oh, Anna, you hit, you hit it. Oh my God. Um, you, you hit this piece um, that I've wrestled with because the question about why not just be a nonprofit manager, why not just step out there and go do that, right, has come up in my mind. Like, it's enough just to do that. Right, that's and, a full-time job in itself. Oh my God, it is, right? It's yeah. a full-time job in and of itself. So why not just go do that? And a part of my brain will say, it'd be so much easier <laughs> if you could just go and do that one thing as opposed to the church the network, and I'm also the director of a freedom school uh, here at our, at our church as well. Like, why not just go do that, right? Um, and depending on what day it is, uh, the needle might lean more and more in that direction. Like, you know what? Especially if you catch me on a Monday. It's like, there you know it what? It's, Monday. Yeah. it's been a long weekend. <laughs> the sermon didn't go the way I wanted it to go. That's enough. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> go be a CEO. Thank you. <laughs> You know, executive director, and I'll be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, those those waves come, and when they come, I try to just honor them and let the wave keep on washing. But the thing that pulls me back, one of the things that pulls me back, is um, I want to do my part, and a good friend of mine um, helped push me in this realization as well. But I want to do my part to show that you can do this work from the base of a church. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like it's, it's, I feel challenged. I feel like, I feel like you know, I'm, I'm being challenged to show that pastors can do this, mm -hmm. that we could figure it out. We could do the hard work of reconfiguring our churches if need be, the structures of governance and management and leadership in our churches, have hard conversations with members about what their real, you know, what they consider to be priorities for me, what they really want from me. Because what I've experienced is that there are many things that I thought the members of my church wanted that they could care less about. And here I am all night long working on this e-newsletter and they don't even care about the e-newsletter. They ain't reading it. <laughs> they ain't even, man, Sam, they're not even man, reading Man, my people don't read anything. I'm doing a bulletin, a newsletter, robocalls on the phone, and y'all don't care? Yeah, you're like a publisher on top of everything else, and nobody <laughs> nobody is reading a thing. Yeah, so it's, so I've had to have some hard conversations, and those conversations got to keep on happening as I continue to try to put my finger on the pulse of what it means to best serve this people at Pleasant Hope. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't stay, that, that's not static, that doesn't stay rigid, that moves, right? So that's a part of it, but I, I do want to show that you can do this as a pastor or a church leader. You can do it from the base of a church because I really believe that there are others behind us that have wanderings about whether or not, or at least would be open to the idea 
of shining their best and biggest light through church or parachurch ministry in some kind of way. I want to show that you, you know, they can, young adults can go to college, get a degree in whatever it is. And I want them to at least consider what it might be mm-hmm. to bring their genius to the sanctuary and not just to a boardroom. Mm-hmm. Because I think to your back to your question, back to yeah, back to your question, that I think that there are some things that the sanctuary can offer that the boardroom can't. Yes. And that is why for me, I'm doing my darndest to stay in the sanctuary. Um, because of the deep sense of um, fulfillment, yes, but also there is a wider expanse of tools um, that go deeper than ledgers and spreadsheets and logistics, mm-hmm. right? When you talk about spiritual currency, when you talk about uh, religious uh, um, um, utility, I mean, that's just more there, right? And so. That's why that's why for me it's important to stay in or connected to faith communities. Because when you can turn to sacred scripture, you can turn to sacred ritual, right? It unlocks some things in us and aids in the process of nurturing the social cohesion necessary to create lasting networks. My prayer is that when I'm dead and gone, a hundred years from now, the seeds that I'm planting these connections that we're making between children in North Carolina and children in Maryland and farmers in the rural country and inner city churches. I pray that these seeds still will be there. The roots will, you know, would have been there. And then back to your point, it won't be about, oh, let's look at what Heber Brown did, right? Mm-hmm. We won't have to fall suspect to the poison of the pedestals, right? And that poison is real. But we can say, look what God has done through us yeah. and not just through him. Mm. Yes. Mm. And when I feel those, that wave that you talk about, and I feel it just like you do, um, I'm reminded of what you said, that sometimes the church is a mess, but it's my roots. It's my roots. And I can't be uprooted from the thing that has made me what I am. And I still believe in those roots. And I hear a little bit of that spirit coming out of you, that there's something buried here that maybe we forgot, but it's still there and we can recover it. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. That's, that's a great, that's a great. And when you said my roots are there, that resonates with me, of course, but also made me think about what it would feel like to be disconnected from those roots. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like so much. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the role of a, of a religious leader mm-hmm. um, when I say this, but so much of who I am was shaped in the bosom of the church. Exactly. Yeah. That it's yeah. hard for me to, it would be hard for me to recognize myself disconnected from it not as i don't have to be a pastor in it i no. get that but I, I, it's hard for me to imagine so much so many of the life lessons uh that i've received and examples of faithfulness and examples of how to pick yourself up when you mess up yeah. like i need that i can't say that for nobody else <laughs> i don't know about nobody else i need that and on my mm-hmm. own left to my own devices man i would be more of a mess than what i am right now yeah. I want to go back to a concept that you brought up, because um, as I've listened to you and learned from you, you met, you shown a light on something that I sort of intuited, um, and this is this idea of toxic charity, um, in terms of saying what is wrong with some of the ways that what are the problems with some of the ways that we fostered an idea of charity, and one of the things that I'm thinking about is as we talk about food and faith. 
that if we're not careful, we can perpetuate sort of a toxic charity. Well, look, we've got the community garden and we give it to these poor people over here. And so I'd like to ask you, what does toxic charity kind of smell like? What does it look like? As a pastor, what do you identify as these are some red flags we need to pay attention to when we're thinking about um, how we love our neighbors? Yeah, yeah. So you you gave a good example, even in your example, uh, labeling. I listen for language, Mm. right? Language can oftentimes be... Uh, you know, a, a blinking neon sign to see h- how people communicate what they're doing mm. matters because those that that language um, is connected to what they believe about what they're doing, mm. uh, and so that that that's a part of it. And in terms of like what it smells like, um, empty transactions. Mm. Um, here, you take this. You're better. I feel good about what I've done. Um, and you know, I leave feeling better about myself. Um, so the spotlight, the spotlight is like on self, mm-hmm. like right. m- massaging the psyche. In fact, in one, and this wasn't a food related, um, ministry endeavor, but it was another organization that would give, um, clothes out, you know, um, uh, to, uh, people in need of clothes here in the city of Baltimore. And there was a white brother there who was a part of that effort. And we were just talking on the side as we were folding clothes and getting things ready. And uh, he said to me, he said, um, something to the effect of, I, I do this to uh, deal with my white guilt. Um, and it was a very earnest, I mean, he was being very honest, uh, you know, so I respected him and what he was saying. Um, but when he said it, he revealed his motivation. Mm-hmm. my white guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it can become, it, beca- it can become problematic when that spotlight is on what, on what it does for you, whatever the act does, what it does for you. I'm not saying not to consider that at all. Sure. I- I'm saying that we got to be very careful about our motivations. And uh, so, you know, those are some of the things that for me are problematic. And then too, you know, when you keep on, when there's a, tim, when there's a pattern of um, erasure mm-hmm. um, and making invisible those who've long been doing that work or those who might bring forward solutions or ideas um, that formal tra- training or professional meetings or best practices uh, have not validated, like when there's a practice of uh, censuring and erasing and disappearing those who come forward with different ideas, then that too kind of reeks to me of, you know, toxic charity, because I have been taught and learned so much from um, 85-year-old farmers who don't have a master's degree in seminary and a doctor of ministry degree, uh, but in a few words, um, give me much more than any textbook that a classroom has ever given me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so toxic charity also um, has its preferences about who the heroes are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it can be, it can blind us to, um, you know, the angels in our midst that God has right next to us, but we just didn't honor their, their voices or their mm-hmm. stories. Something that at the guard. Church, I mean, our motto is feeding me food, and it was addressing that thing that everyone has something they're hungry for, but also everyone has something to offer. And I found that it was 
I mean, to be honest, it was often the harder pastoral work to work with the upper middle class white woman who wanted to come down and help those poor homeless people. I mean, like that, like working with her, her transformation was more of a challenge for me than to, you know, work with the former meth addict who's living on the streets and is pretty scruffy, but wants to come in and water the garden. And, you know, that, that there's that, that, that toxicity is alive and real and to be able to create spaces and opportunities for that to be flipped and for the power dynamic to be flipped and for the humility of, of everyone has something to offer. And that's actually so often more important than just what we're hungry for. I mean, yes, people are hungry. They need food. But we also need to say, hey, look, you are valuable and you have something to offer in this situation. And and what is it? Let's be curious about it. Um, I'm curious, do you have a story that, like, wh- where do you see this being combated? Where do you see whatever the opposite of toxic charity is? You know, where, where's the kingdom of God showing up in this work? Yeah, I, I think I have a few stories. And I think I appreciate what you share and what you raise because it can be, um, we can be enticed by taking what seem like shortcuts to um, success in the food and faith community or the larger climate or environmental or, or any space. But there's some shortcuts that actually undercut the yes. potential longevity, sustainability, and deep respect and reverence that can come with your work, right? And so what you just described, I think, is one of those things that looks like a shortcut let's just get the hungry people the food, right? That's the main thing, right? Um, it looks like a shortcut to ignore the things that you raised in terms of sense of self and honoring that everybody has something to give and also, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like a shortcut. Let's just get the job done, but it, it can undercut uh, your work in uh, so many ways. And you might look up one day and find that nobody is coming to get your free stuff because it costs too much. Mm-hmm. People will say, well, it's free. It still costs too much yeah. in other ways that don't involve currency, economic yeah. currency. Um, in terms of where we're seeing that show up in the Black Church Food Security Network, I take great joy in bending the privilege and the privileges of being a pastor, bending it in the direction of uh, more just social connection and arrangements and more um, egalitarianism in, in the way in which we do our work. So one of the ways, for example, is I did an interview recently and we made space um, at our soil to sanctuary markets, which we hold inside churches, and, you know, what the farmers bring up. Um, I had such a great time in bending some of that energy and attention to the woman who runs our church kitchen. And she's been ministering in our church kitchen and leading our church food ministry for 25 years or more. And while our congregation has long loved Sister Minnie and all of the great things that she does out of that kitchen, um, I asked her if she would teach a workshop for us and all those who come to our market, teach a workshop on uh, what she takes joy in, how to season food well and season it in a healthy way. And so I turned the camera on her, did an interview with her, and put that interview out in our newsletter, on our social media. And um, 
we are preparing now to do similar things for the church kitchen um, uh, directors at churches around the city of Baltimore, bringing them together, giving them their props, celebrating them and asking them, what can we do to support you better and more? Yeah. And so I'm excited about that, um, about that, that kind of arrangement where, and what I really love about it too, Anna, is that, you know, I know very little about what to do in the kitchen. I'm just going to confess that uh, so everybody can just know. It's all right. We can't all do everything. <laughs> it's, it's a so, body of Christ. <laughs> Not just one toenail. <laughs> so, exactly. So what I enjoy, and it, and it seems like it's what the members enjoy as well, uh, being in, a, in an arena where everybody knows I'm clueless. Like genuinely <laughs> clueless. I'm not putting on, I'm not, it's none of that. I'm clueless. And so when I ask Sister many questions about different seasonings and how long to cook stuff and how to do stuff, I'm really asking genuine questions. Right. And the pride they have uh-huh. and the way their chest sticks out at I'm teaching the pastor something. Yeah. And I gratefully receive it because I need, you know, um, I need to learn how to do this stuff. Um, but I've just seen how it is not only something that members and those in our network take pride when you, you know, rightly uh, applaud the genius, wisdom, and insight that they have, but can I just confess that it is a relief for me to spend time in spaces where I'm clueless and everybody knows I'm clueless mm-hmm. and I don't have to pretend or have the expectations of leading anybody. That might add more years on my pastoring uh, um, journey. If I can spend more time in the clueless spaces and not be expected to lead anything or speak or come to the microphone. Um, So that is a way in which that piece piece that you talk about, that everybody has something um, to give and we all can have something to receive. That is a way that that dynamic, at least one example of how that dynamic is helpful to me and uplifting rightfully so those who've for too long been in the shadows of so many important work, much important work in our churches and communities. Every single pastor who's listening to this just stood up from their desk and is going, yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's the truth. Yeah. And you know, yeah, the idea of pastoring is cultivating, cultivating those spaces where, yeah, including me, I can be clueless sometimes. I just, yeah. I'm just really grateful for that. Yeah. It's, I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not knowledgeable enough to know it all, which is why I need the body of Christ. I need the church as much as anybody else does. And yeah. Sam, can I just say too, I wonder what the impact it would have for us as pastors. And this, you know, I won't let this turn into pastors after dark or something, but <laughs> I just wonder what would happen <laughs> if um, we more regularly uh, made space and time and place and honored um that there need to be spaces where we are clueless about stuff. Like, what if yep. that became more of a pattern in our churches um, and more of our churches anyway? So that we could, Anna, as you were alluding to earlier, we could stray and stay away from that pedestal uh, and the poison yep. that comes with that pedestal. I have a friend of mine who regularly tells me the story from uh, ancient Rome where there was a particular servant, I forgot the title of him now, but the particular servant was. Uh, to work in service to leaders, different leaders in ancient Rome. And their job was to stand behind the leader in moments when there was applause for that leader 
And their job was to whisper in the leader's ear, you are just a man. Wow, that's good. (laughs) You are just a man. In that context, it was men in ancient Rome who were those leaders, but it could be just as easily, you are just a woman. Yeah. Just a woman. And their job was to do that, particularly in moments when they were before crowds receiving applause, adulation, and encouragement. You're just a man. You're just a woman. You're just human. Don't let it go to your head. Yeah. Well, an image that just is so present with me as you're speaking that it's just, I mean, isn't that what Jesus did when he took off his outer garment and bent mm. down to wash his disciples' feet? Like I just, as you were speaking it, that that image is so present with me that we we have a role model for this. We have an example. In fact, we have a mandate. We have a mandate. Yeah. So yeah. easy to forget. So well, we're up against uh, up against our time here. And yeah. so we want to wrap this up with a question that we ask everyone. Where do you find hope these days? Mm. Um, well, to, in, in this particular week, I'm finding hope in, in youth and young adults in our church. Um, uh, there was research, I think Barna put something out recently about the ups and downs of ministry. And one of the greatest sources of frustration that this particular survey found amongst pastors was um, was connected to apathy amongst members um, and just not being interested, right, in or not seeming to be interested in what was going on in the church. And um, that resonates with me, uh, resonated. And, and, and I, you know, when you give so much of yourself trying to do things and pull things together, when you're thinking about people who may or may not be thinking about you at three o'clock in the morning and, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that that frustration can mount when it seems like people don't care about all of the things that you're doing. But then when I think about the young adults in my church, they care deeply and they're motivated about things that go far beyond just things that traditionally happen inside churches. And what I'm encouraged by and where I have hope right now, and I'm encouraged by the position that I'm in to help steer more of the church in the direction of what young adults care about and listen close with a closer ear about um, what they're saying, because um, God may be whispering in their ear uh, some things that uh, my ears aren't accustomed to hearing or don't notice to hear God in. And so we're currently looking to establish an intentional living community at our church to invite young adults, provide young adults subsidized housing, and, and uh, at the same time receive from them the gift of their energy, their passion, um, their deep sense of um, conviction around issues in the world. Um, and also our church has a, an inactive community development corporation um, that I, I set it up years ago and brought all the usual suspects of church leadership together to help run it and lead it forward. And do you know that thing died? Mm. Um, the energy wasn't there amongst the those. Yeah. And so just this, in the past seven days, God almost woke me up out of my sleep with the idea, give the CDC to the youth. Oh, wow. Give it to them. Here's your platform. The paperwork's already done. It's already registered with the state. It's already together. It's just not doing anything. Take it, take it, and we'll put mentoring around you 
but go pursue the things that you hear God doing and know that you've got the church that has your back. We'll raise the money. You got a pastor who will put a basket up in a minute and say, y'all, we got to raise $5,000 because the young people want to do X, Y, Z. Um, so I'm really excited about taking risks and following the lead and energy of young adults. It might get me fired. Um, but I've, uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, my, my agreement with God was, okay, God, I'll be a pastor, but if I'm going to be a pastor, I don't want to play it safe. Mm. You know, if I hear you say something, if I'm convinced that it's, it's your leading, and if I get counsel from trusted elders and mentors, that it's enough of it sounds right to pursue it, then I want to pastor like I'm about to get fired as opposed to play it safe and in the, in the spirit of job security and getting the check every couple of weeks, you know, have a good career. Yeah. But what, at what expense? Right. And so I'm, I'm really excited. I have hope and young people I have hope in risk-taking. I have hope uh, in our churches and I have hope in farmers too, who uh, we have so many shared challenges, inner city, rural um, farmers, consumers, and I'm excited about figuring out ways to find nexus points where we can connect in deep, meaningful ways that don't just, you know, uh, boil down to um, capitalism or, you know, financial transactions. It's a, a beautiful note to end on. And thank you for taking time. And I'm just so grateful for your friendship and your colleagueship. And um, I, I'm personally grateful that this is one conversation amongst a large network and time of conversation. So we'll certainly have you back on the podcast in the future, but we're really grateful for you, you being part of this, this initial um, launching of this, this slice of the conversation in the world. So um, how can people get connected with your work if they want to follow you or get involved or if they're in the Baltimore area? Sure. I'm going to give a few websites. One, go to blackchurchfoodsecurity.net blackchurchfoodsecurity.net will take you to the website of our network, or you can call 410-435-0851 and select the option for the network. You can also um, go to heberbrown.com, www.heberbrown.com and check out not only the network, but some of the other things that I'm, I'm blessed to be a part of right now as well. I'd love to connect with people and there's so much more for me to learn. So uh, don't be afraid to come and share some insight as well. I'm, I'm still growing and enjoying my journey and I uh, will appreciate any kind of meaningful connection. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. May the conversations continue. Indeed. Thank you so thank much, Heber. It's a pleasure to see you. Oh, thank you. Y'all two are my favorite people on the planet. I appreciate the work that y'all doing and many blessings on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast. Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.